Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning. If you would, please turn again to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Today is part two in our summer series on biblical anthropology, or the doctrine of man. Last week we opened the series by talking about the dignity of man, and today we're going to talk about, as you can see, the identity of man. Now, just to reiterate what I said last week, my overall objective is that we would all have a better understanding and a better appreciation of what it means to bear the image of God. And so as we move along in this series, as we're considering different aspects of image bearing, we're trying to arrive at a good working definition of what it means to bear the image of God. And so based upon last week's material, we could say that to be made in the image of God is to reflect the righteousness of God as his representative upon the earth. And so from this kind of truncated definition, we at least see some of the things we talked about last week, that We were made to reflect God, but also to be his representative. And that at the heart of image bearing is reflecting and representing God in terms of his righteousness. But this is still an incomplete definition. So to add more depth to this definition, we need to consider the identity of man. Now, we cannot fully appreciate the identity of man unless we understand the concept of unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. The concept of unity in diversity is seen throughout the Bible. So for example, right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating all of life, he creates a wide, diversified life of plants and animals. So vegetation and trees, animals, birds, fish, livestock, creeping things, a rich diversity of life. And yet it says there's a unity with each one because they're each made according to their own kind. So we see unity in the diversity. We see another example of this in the church. The church collectively is referred to as the body of Christ. So there's unity. And yet, we're not all the same. We're individual members of this body. So there's diversity in that unity. Or again, we could think of Jesus Christ himself. He is one person, and yet there are two natures. Human nature, divine nature. So again, Unity in diversity. And other examples could be given, but here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we again see this theme of unity in diversity, both with respect to God and with respect to man. Now, when we look at the text of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it doesn't necessarily jump out at us, this idea of unity in diversity, and it can easily escape our attention if we're not looking for it. So let's go ahead and read the text, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, while paying special attention to the idea of unity in diversity. So Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice with reference to God, 
the use of both singular and plural personal pronouns. In verse 26, the plural pronouns us and our are used with respect to God. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. But then, in the next verse, in verse 27, the singular pronouns are used, his and he, with reference to God. So which is it? Is God singular or plural? Well, he's both. He's both. He's triune. He's three persons and yet one being. Unity in diversity. Now, there's been some debate over whether or not these words, us and our, in verse 26, are really meant to indicate the three persons of the Trinity, and I don't really want to get into the weeds of that debate. For my own part, I firmly believe that these pronouns, us and our, are meant to indicate the three persons of the Trinity. And one of the reasons I hold this view is because I believe that this veiled reference to the Trinity is meant to give us some insight into the identity of man. Man was made to reflect the unity in diversity of the Trinity. Like the Godhead, man also is described using language that incorporates the idea of unified singularity and plurality. Look again at verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, him is a singular pronoun. And them is a plural pronoun. So which is it? Is man singular or plural? Well, he's both. He's unity and diversity, just like the God that he was made to resemble and represent. In Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, we see this reiterated after the fall. In Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, we read that when God created man, he made him singular in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, plural. And he blessed them and named them, plural, man, singular, when they were created. And so it's very clear from these two passages, in Genesis 1 and again in Genesis 5, that there is a unity in diversity with man. And that maleness and femaleness are fundamentally part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It wasn't just Adam that was made in the image of God, it was also Eve. In both places, Genesis 1 and again in Genesis 5, we find that God's likeness and God's image is reflected in man both as male and female. The concept of maleness and femaleness, therefore, is highly relevant with regard to our understanding of man being made as God's image. How so? How does the unity in diversity of man, as seen in maleness and femaleness, how does this reflect God? And what does any of this have to do with man's identity? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to consider three ways, three ways in which God has revealed himself and has reflected his own being and character in maleness and femaleness. Three ways in which God has revealed himself and has reflected his own being and character in maleness and femaleness, and most specifically, in the union of a man and a woman within the bond of marriage. And so the three ways in which God has revealed himself are one, relationality, two, equality, and three, authority. So let's look first at relationality. Relationality. God is a relational being. He's not a solitary, impersonal monad. 
He's a triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have forever been in fellowship, relating to one another and loving one another. Prior to creation, God was not alone. There has always existed within the Godhead interpersonal relationships, which has profound implications with regard to our understanding of human nature, so anthropology, and our understanding of human society, sociology. Living face-to-face in community with each other and having interpersonal relationships with one another is an essential part of our humanity, and it distinguishes us as image-bearers. God, think about it this way, God is persons in relationship. God is persons in relationship. And that is exactly what we were made to be, persons in relationship just like him. The Trinity is a divine community. Thus, as his unique image bearers, we are intuitively communal. We are by nature social creatures. In fact, we find our identity in our relationships. We find our identity in our relationships. Now, when we're talking about identity, we're talking about the relationships that we look to for our security and our significance. When we're talking about identity, we're talking about the relationships that we look to in our lives that provide us security and significance. This concept of identity having to do with relational security and significance is of immense importance. Our identity is inextricably linked to the relationships that we look to for our security and significance. Because we've been made as image bearers of God, we can't help but find our identity, our security and our significance in our relationships. The identity of man is bound up in his relationality. In fact, it's for this reason that God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. When did God say that? Did he say it before the fall or after the fall? He said it before the fall, which means that loneliness is not a result of the fall. Loneliness was present even in the sinless, pristine, pre-fallen world. One of the reasons why God had Adam name all of the animals was to make Adam acutely aware of the fact that he was missing something. This is plainly seen from the text of Genesis 2, 18 through 20. You can go ahead and turn there if you want since you're right next to it already. Genesis 2, 18 and 20. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. The obvious implication, if there was not found... The obvious implication is that he was looking. He was looking and not finding. Commenting on these verses, Herman Bavinck writes, the first man was not satisfied. He was not fulfilled. And the cause is indicated to him by God himself. It lies in his solitude. It's not good for the man to be alone. He's not so constituted. He was not created that way. 
His nature inclines to be social, relationality. He wants company. He must be able to express himself, reveal himself, and give himself. He must be able to pour out his heart, to give form to his feelings. He must share his awareness with a being who can understand him and can feel and live along with him. Solitude is poverty, forsakenness, gradual pining and wasting away. How lonesome it is to be alone. As Adam was naming all of the animals, he undoubtedly thought to himself, you know, there's always two of each kind here. They're different and yet the same. Where's my different but the same? Where's my complementary companion? This was one of the things that God wanted Adam to realize. He was prompting Adam to see his need for an interpersonal relationship with someone else of the same kind. And this is why Adam, after naming all of the animals, exuberantly exclaimed upon being introduced to Eve, at last, at last. What does this imply? It implies that there was a real longing, a real dissatisfaction, but at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. At last, I can have a relationship with one of my own kind, with someone who's different and yet the same. In this way, we see that God made man, male and female, to reflect the unity in diversity and the relationality that is present within the Trinity. As a personal and relational God, it should make sense that God would make man a personal and relational creature as his image bearer. As a God of unity and diversity, it should make sense that God would not only make Adam, but someone like Adam, and yet different from Adam. Someone that is the same as Adam in dignity, in essence, and humanity, but at the same time is not identical to Adam, not the same person as Adam. It should make sense that God would create a person that Adam can relate to and love in a way that reflects the relationality and love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, man is a relational being because he was made to reflect the relationality of the Trinity. And of all human relationships, out of all human relationships, the one that most clearly reveals the deep unity in diversity that God himself has within the Trinity is the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. This can be inferred from the way in which Jesus connects the creation of man as male and female in Genesis 1 with the covenant of marriage in Genesis 2. In Matthew 19 and also in Mark 10, we read there that Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees on the issue of marriage and divorce. And in his answer, in Jesus' answer, he connects Genesis 1.27, that God made them male and female, he connects that with something said in Genesis 2. 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Jesus joins these two verses together as if no explanation were needed, as if the connection were natural and necessary and obvious. Thus, in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, we see the fullest expression or mirroring of the unity and diversity that exists within the Godhead. Richard Lentz, in his book, Identity and Idolatry, he puts it this way. In marriage, we have two persons who are united by a relationship into one flesh. 
Although different, they each belong to each other. Male and female are created as beings who offer something the other does not have. They find satisfaction in the intimacy of their union, which is made richer by virtue of their differences. I love that line. The intimacy of that union is made richer by virtue of their differences. When we look at marriage, we see that God instituted it to be the union of a man and a woman so as to reflect the unity in diversity within the Trinity. And in order for marriage to properly reflect the Godhead, there has to be a distinction. There has to be a difference. There has to be a diversity within that unity. And that distinction, that difference, that diversity is maleness and femaleness. Therefore, marriage must always, always be understood and defined as being the union of a man and a woman. Genesis 2.24 is key to understanding this. The man and the woman, diversity, become one flesh, unity. And this deep, intense unity, it goes far beyond the physical. It actually knits the souls of two image bearers together. Over the course of a lifetime, marriage is a form of melding two spirits together into one. That's the intent of it. Marriage is meant to maintain distinctiveness and diversity, but at the same time, an intense unity, which thereby reflects God himself. Therefore, one of the ways in which God reflects his own being and character is in the maleness and femaleness of man, and most specifically in the union of a man and a woman within the bond of marriage. And this is perhaps the most significant way that man is distinguished from the angels. Angels were all created at once. They do not beget their own race. There are no male-female distinctions among the angels, nor do the angels marry. In contrast to the angels, man was not created all at once. Man begets his own race through the union of a male and a female. I mean, think about it. We are begetting our own race even now. More and more image bearers are being born every minute. So the race of man is not done. This has massive implications when it comes to the relationality of man in comparison to the angels. As Herman Bavink once again points out, angels are not related by blood, and they do not know such distinctions as father and mother, parents and children, brothers and sisters. Therefore, listen to this. There is a whole world of relationships and connections, ideas, and emotions, desires, and duties of which the angels know nothing. They may be more powerful than men, but they are not so versatile. They stand in fewer relationships. And in riches and depth of the emotional life, man is far superior to the angel. Angels experience God's power and wisdom and goodness, but human beings share in his eternal mercies. God is their Lord, but he's not their father. Christ is their head, but he's not their reconciler and savior. The Holy Spirit is their sender and guide, but he never testifies with their spirit that they are children and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. <laughs> this is weighty stuff, brethren. 
There are no family ties that bind all the angels together as there are with man, since angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Thus, angels cannot fully appreciate or understand the husband-wife relationship, the father-mother relationship, the parent-child relationship, the sibling relationship, etc., because they do not generate their own race like we do. They were not made male and female and told to be fruitful and multiply. Furthermore, they cannot be partakers of the divine nature like we can because they cannot be joined to Christ in the way that we can. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.4 that we can be partakers of the divine nature because we are joined to Christ who has partaken of our nature. Remember, we said before, one person, Christ is one person, two natures, human nature, divine nature. So because he shares our human nature, when we are joined to him by virtue of his divine nature, he allows us to be partakers of that divine nature. The angels cannot refer to Jesus as their elder brother because that's not their relationship to him. It's ours. The angels have not been given the spirit of adoption because they've not been adopted. They cannot call, and therefore they cannot call God Father in the same way that we can because they've not been adopted by him as we have. They are not so near in their relationship to the Father as we are because they're not joined to the Son as we are. What honor and privilege we have been given being joined to the God-man. I think this is what got John, the, the apostle, so excited when he's talking in 1 John 3, 1. When you read that verse, you should read it that way. Behold, what manner of love is this? What manner of love has the Father bestowed on us that we, we should be called the children of God? It blew his mind, and it should blow our minds. As the image bearer of God, man stands in an entirely different relationship to God than all other creatures, including the angels. Remember last week I told you, put a pin in that thought because we're going to come back to it. Well, here we are, full circle. And hopefully now you understand why that's such an important thing to remember. Man stands in an entirely different relationship to God than all other creatures, including the angels. Thus, in the relationality of man, we discover his unique identity, and in the maleness and femaleness of man, and especially in the union of a man and a woman in marriage, we're given a picture of the unity in diversity that exists within the Godhead. All right, number two, equality. Another way that maleness and femaleness is reflective of the character and being of God is equality. Just as the members of the Trinity are equal in their importance and in their existence as distinct persons, so men and women have been created by God to be equal in their importance and in their personhood. When God created man, he created both male and female equally in his likeness. Now let's take a moment to think about the implications of this. If man was made to reflect God, and if man has been made both male and female, then God intended both maleness and femaleness to reveal something about himself. 
So what are some things that are generally inherent to maleness that are not necessarily as inherent to femaleness and vice versa? What are some things that are generally inherent to femaleness that are not necessarily as inherent to maleness? I'm obviously not talking about anatomy here. I'm talking about the way that men and women are wired. I'm talking about the way that men and women approach relationships or problems, the different ways that they think and feel, the different ways in which they prioritize and view life, etc. If we were to analyze these differences, would we be able to conclude that one sex is better than the other? Or are they both together portraying a fuller picture of God himself? I think God would have us understand that maleness and femaleness together give us the fullest picture of what he is like. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not at all suggesting that we're free to think of God as being either a he or she. No. The point that I'm making is that maleness and femaleness complement one another in displaying a more full-orbed view of who God is. As we've already noted, God said that it was not good that the man should be alone. So, hear me when I say this. It was not good that the man should be without the woman because without her, there would be an insufficient, full-orbed revelation of God's character and being. You need the woman. You need them both. To quote Wayne Grudem, men and women are made equally in God's image and both men and women reflect God's character in their lives. And this means that we should see aspects of God's character in each other's lives. If we lived in a society consisting of only Christian men or a society consisting of only Christian women, we would not gain as full a picture of the character of God as when we see both godly men and godly women in their complementary differences together reflecting the beauty of God's character. The tenderness, the sensitivity, the gentleness and compassion that is generally inherent to femininity and the strength and the courage and the leadership that's generally inherent to masculinity, God is revealing something of himself in both. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that women do not or cannot display strength, courage, and leadership, nor am I saying that men do not or cannot display tenderness, sensitivity, gentleness, and compassion. I'm speaking in generalities. All I'm trying to show is that there are things inherent to femininity and things inherent to masculinity that reveal to us the character of God and that the fullness of God's character is best reflected when maleness and femaleness are considered together. And I think we get a hint of this in a verse like Romans 11.22, where it says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. These are two very different aspects of God, seemingly. But when it says that he is severe, what it's talking about, that severity is severe against sin and, and evil and wickedness. But the fact that he is uh, severe against those things points to his goodness. So they complement. It would seem that they contradict, but they don't. They actually complement. We see again in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when God is passing by Moses and declaring his goodness. He says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's tender, he's compassionate, but he will by no means clear the guilty. 
Again, that severity towards sin. In Psalm 7 and in Psalm 11, God is described as a warrior with instruments of war pointed at the wicked. But then in other places, in other scriptures, he's, he's likened to a tender mother. Places in Hosea and Deuteronomy and Isaiah. All of this suggests that the fullness of God's character is best reflected when maleness and femaleness are considered together. Now this next nod should amaze you. It, it amazes me. Christ, Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. As the God-man, Jesus displayed the fullest picture of the character of God. He manifested both masculinity and femininity in perfect balance and harmony at all times. In terms of his humanity, Christ revealed everything there was to reveal about God. Everything associated with maleness that reflects God's character and everything associated with femaleness that reflects God's character was perfectly imaged in God. I'm sorry, in Christ, who is the exact imprint or representation of the divine nature, as we read in Hebrews 1.3. As the God-man, Christ was complete. He was not like the first Adam who needed a wife. In Christ, there was no lack. He needed no compliment. The Lord Jesus has more tenderness and compassion than the most tender and compassionate woman that has ever walked on this earth. And he has more strength and courage than the most courageous and, and strong man that has ever walked on this earth. In terms of Christ's strength and courage, we have many instances in the Gospels where this is put on display. I think of the many times when Jesus is having to uh, confront the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you see that he's, he's just not afraid. He's going to speak the truth no matter what, no matter how it might offend. So, for example, when he says something like, go and learn what this means. Do you know how insulting that would be to them? Or he says something to them like, have you not read? That's a slap in the face. That, that's their livelihood. That's what they do for a living. He was so confrontational that at times his, his own disciples would confront him. And they would say, don't you know you just offended these guys? Yeah. The most explosive confrontational moment, I think, is in Matthew 23. He excoriates the scribes and Pharisees. He just lights them on fire with a series of woes. Woe to you, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I mean, whoa, you can feel the heat coming off the pages when you read that. But then at the very end of that series of woes, he laments over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Well, this is a very motherly, compassionate, tender picture I think of his encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. There's that compassion, that tenderness. 
And so he says to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And of course, this disheartened the rich young ruler because he had great possessions. But he wasn't able to confront him. So we see both. He violently overturns tables and chases the money changers out of the temple with a whip, but he also has great compassion on the crowds. He spends hours teaching them, feeding them, healing them. He rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith and their slowness to learn, but then he stoops down to wash their feet. Perhaps we see it most at the cross. He suffers courageously the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's forsaken by his own father because he has become sin. Great courage. But then at the very same time, he has tenderness and compassion and, and the presence of mind to make sure that his earthly mother is not forsaken. He's being forsaken by the father, but in the midst of that, he's thinking of his earthly mother, that she's not forsaken. Behold, woman, your son, as he points to John, his disciple, he wants to make sure she's taken care of. Again and again, we see courage and strength juxtaposed with tenderness and compassion. He was the perfect balance and manifestation of maleness and femaleness, which is why he's a savior that draws both men and women to himself. He's not so rough and tumble masculine that he would alienate women, but neither is he so gentle and tender that he would alienate men. He's neither too hard nor too soft. He's just right. As a man, I can come to Christ and know that I have a high priest who understands my temptations and struggles as a man. And women find the same when they come to Christ. All that to say, in Christ, we see perfect masculinity and femininity displayed, which gives us the most complete picture of the character of God. And it indicates to us the equality of both men and women as image bearers. Though the roles of men and women are different, as we shall see momentarily, nevertheless, men and women are made equally in God's image, and both men and women reflect God's character in their lives. Moving on, third way, that maleness and femaleness reflect the character and being of God is authority. Authority. Just as there is an authority structure within the Godhead, so there is an authority structure within mankind. In fact, the authority structure within mankind is meant to reflect the authority structure within the Godhead. Now, on the surface of things, this might seem to be a contradiction. How can we talk about equality and then immediately turn around and talk about authority? Doesn't the existence of an authority structure automatically make some people less significant or inferior compared to others? It's easy for us to think this way, but it's also wrong for us to think this way. This is how the world thinks of authority, but it's not the way that we as Christians are to think of authority. Hear me when I say this. Inequality of dignity is not inherent to an authority structure. For even within the Trinity, there exists an authority structure, and yet each person of the Trinity is equally dignified. The Father sends the Son. The Son never sends the Father. Similarly, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit never sends the Father and the Son. Again, the Son submits to and testifies of the Father, and the Spirit submits to and testifies of the Son. And so clearly there's an authority structure within the Godhead, and yet there's no inequality 
or loss of dignity as a result. There's no friction or discord whatsoever within the Godhead. There's nothing but love between the persons of the Trinity. Whenever authority is being exercised within the Godhead, there is at the same time love and encouragement and support that is being shown. Though the Father commissioned the Son throughout that commission, we find the Father in communion with the Son, encouraging him, supporting him, and even audibly and publicly affirming him. And we see the same loving support and enabling power from the Holy Spirit. The authority within the Trinity is always carried out in the interests of every person involved with encouragement and love and communion. And note well that this authority structure does not in any way diminish the essential equality of the three persons. Christ's willing and cheerful submission to the Father has no bearing whatsoever on his dignity. He's no less God than the Father is God. Thus, the inequality of dignity is not inherent to an authority structure. For even within the Trinity, there exists an authority structure, and yet each person of the Trinity is equally dignified. And since man was made to reflect the relational character of the Trinity, it should come as no surprise that there are similar differences in roles and authority among human beings. Even with respect to the most basic of all differences among human beings, the differences between male and female. And this is certainly what we find in the biblical text with regard to marriage. Just as God the Father has authority over the Son, though the two are equal in deity, so in a marriage the husband has authority over the wife, though they are equal in personhood. All right, in the time that remains, I have five points of observation application. And the first one is this. Notions of superiority or inferiority with respect to one's sex are equally sinful. Notions of superiority or inferiority with respect to one's sex are equally sinful. Hopefully, if I was to ask you men here today, if you're happy to be a man, you would heartily say, yes, very glad to be a man. And likewise, if I was to ask you women here today, if you're happy to be a woman, hopefully you would all heartily say, yes, I'm very glad to be a woman. And that's a good thing. It's not prideful to be content with how God has made you. In fact, it's right. But we're never to cross the line and go so far as to say, as a man, I'm better than a woman. Or vice versa, as a woman, I'm better than a man. Men, we are not to elevate our maleness over femaleness. And conversely, you women are not to elevate your femaleness over maleness. Women are not to view men through the lens of toxic masculinity. And neither are men to view women through the lens of toxic femininity. Adam and Eve were both, both cursed as a result of the fall. Thus, both sexes exhibit sinful toxicity toward one another. In other words, sorry, nevertheless, The fall has not completely destroyed the image of God in man, thus there are still characteristics inherent to maleness that reflect God, and there are still characteristics inherent to femaleness that reflect God. Therefore, if we understand that men and women are equally made in the likeness of God, and that there are things about maleness that reflect God, as well as things about femaleness that reflect God, the character of God, 
then how can we possibly elevate one over the other? Notions of inferiority or superiority with respect to one's sex are equally sinful. Similarly, observation application number two. Discontentment with respect to one's sex is sinful. Discontentment with respect to one's sex is sinful. As we just observed in our previous application, it's not prideful to be content with how God has made you. In fact, it's right. If you're a man, you should be happy and content to be a man, for this is good and proper and right. And if you're a woman, you should be happy and content to be a woman because this is good and proper and right. But our culture doesn't hold to this. Our culture is vehemently rebelling against this. Our culture would have us believe that the categories, the very categories of maleness and femaleness are irrelevant and insignificant and that such distinctions need not be recognized or maintained. And yet, we just learned that maleness and femaleness are fundamentally part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That one of the ways in which God reflects his own being and character is in the maleness and femaleness of man. And so, brethren, notions of transgenderism and gender fluidity, they're blasphemous abominations because they completely undermine the maleness and femaleness distinctions of man that are meant to reflect the triune God that created man. When a man says, I identify as a woman, or when a woman says, I identify as a man, In either case, they are declaring that they are discontent with the sex that God has assigned to them. They're essentially saying to God, you made a mistake. You didn't make me the way that you should have. You didn't create me the right way. And note the concept of identity in the phrase, I identify as. They are looking to their sexuality to give them the relational security and significance that they lack the security and significance that can only be found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When a man says, I identify as a woman, or when a woman says, I identify as a man, they're committing idolatry because they're looking to their sexuality for their identity, their relational security and significance, instead of looking to God. For these reasons... When a man says, my preferred pronouns are she and her, or when a woman says, my preferred pronouns are he and him, they're declaring their idolatry, and moreover, they're bearing false witness against themselves. A man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. And so I refuse to affirm such delusions. I will not affirm a lie. I will not join someone in bearing false witness against themselves. Words matter, okay? Words matter because words are how truth is communicated. And thus, I will not refer to a man as she, nor will I refer to a woman as he. I refuse to call Bruce Jenner, Caitlin, or William Thomas, Leah. Bruce Jenner and William Thomas are bearing false witness against themselves, and I will not affirm their idolatry. Yeah, but what if the law tells me that I have to affirm and even celebrate every person's so-called identity? 
what if my company puts policies in place where I could get fired if I don't affirm someone's gender? In other words, what if I'm told that I must affirm that which is not only an utter distortion of reality, a flat-out lie, but an utter blasphemy against God and his created social norm for mankind? Well, to this I say, we must obey God rather than men. Yeah, but I could lose my job. Seek first the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this is important. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Brethren, it's not loving to join your neighbor in bearing false witness against himself or herself. Referring to a man as she, or to a woman as he, is an egregious lie. It's affirming that person's idolatry. And when you do it in front of others, even jokingly, it encourages others to affirm lies and to celebrate idolatry. Notions of transgenderism and gender fluidity must be opposed, but we are always to do so lovingly and compassionately. We must always treat those who identify as transgender or any other gender other than what they are with dignity and respect precisely because they too bear the likeness of God. Observation application number three. Husbands and wives should rejoice in the unity in diversity that God has built into their marriage. Husbands and wives should rejoice in the unity in diversity that God has built into their marriage. Husbands, do you rejoice that you have a wife that compliments you? And wives, do you rejoice that you have a husband that compliments you? This is a lovely thought to meditate on, I think. Although there are certain attributes that are generally inherent to maleness and certain attributes that are generally inherent to femaleness, these attributes are communicable. They're communicable. I've learned how to be gentler and more compassionate and tender, you might not think so, by observing my wife and by listening to her counsel. And she has learned how to be stronger and more courageous in the face of adversity as a result of my leadership. God is knitting our souls together in a wonderful way. The mystery is that it's through our differences, it's through our differences that we are being unified more and more as one flesh. It's a beautiful mystery of unity and diversity. Observation application number four. See how same-sex relationships radically distort the image of God and man as well as the authority structure within marriage. See how same-sex relationships radically distort the image of God in man as well as the authority structure within marriage. 
As we observed earlier, male and female are created as beings who offer something the other doesn't have. And in marriage, they find satisfaction in the intimacy of their union, which is made richer by virtue of their differences. All of this is radically distorted by same-sex relationships. God made the woman to be a perfect helpmate and companion for the man, and the two of them together are meant to reflect the unity and diversity within the Trinity. As was said earlier, in order for marriage to properly reflect the Godhead, there has to be a distinction, there has to be a difference, there has to be a diversity within that unity. And that distinction, that difference, that diversity is maleness and femaleness. There has to be maleness and femaleness, otherwise the reflection of the unity and diversity within the Godhead is utterly corrupted. God did not design marriage to knit together the souls of two men or two women. This is a radical perversion of the picture that marriage was designed to display. Furthermore, it totally subverts the authority structure within marriage, and this becomes, I think, especially apparent when children are brought into the picture. When two men adopt a child, or if two women adopt a child, or they have a child through artificial means, what is the message that is being sent? The message that is being sent is this. Children don't need the presence of a father and a mother. In other words, this should be insulting to mothers and fathers. In other words, there is nothing unique that a mother brings to the table with respect to child rearing. Nothing. There's, there's, likewise, there's nothing unique that a father brings to the table with respect to child rearing. Men and women are just interchangeable parts when it comes to child rearing. Two men, two women, a man and a woman makes zero difference when it comes to raising children. Really? It's absurd. All we have to do is look at those communities where fatherlessness abounds to see the kind of damage that can result from this type of thinking. Obviously, children need a father and a mother. God put the authority structure within marriage for a reason, and when we disregard it and pervert it, the consequences are many, they are far-reaching, and they are devastating. Fifthly and finally, last point of observation application. It's in the form of a question. Where do you look for your identity? Where do you look for your identity? If you're not a Christian, where do you find your security and your significance? Many people today look to their ethnic background or, or their sexual orientation for their identity or some, something else, but where do you look for your identity? As was pointed out last week, all men are born into this world with an identity crisis because of sin. All men spend their lives in search of security and significance, but apart from Christ, man can never find his true identity. We find our identity in the relationships that we look to for our security and significance, and the most important relationship of all in terms of our identity is our relationship with our Creator. However, because of sin, all men are estranged from their creator. They are alienated from God. In fact, it's worse than this. 
All men coming into the world are at enmity with God, and he is at enmity with them. They are by nature children of his wrath. And unless our relationship to God is restored, we will spend our lives running around looking for fig leaves to cover the nakedness that we innately feel in our hearts. Looking in all the wrong places for the relational security and significance that we intuitively know is lacking. God created us in his image, and we are only completed and fulfilled in our relationship to him. And secondarily, in our, relationship, in our relationships with his people. We find our true identity in relation to God. How can we be brought back into fellowship with our creator? How can we be reconciled to God and no longer at enmity with him and he with us? How can we have our identity restored? Only in Christ. As the perfect image bearer, he has resolved our identity crisis. When we come to Christ, we're given a new heart. We're given a new identity. We're brought into new relationships. The Father adopts us. The Spirit indwells us. And as the Holy Spirit conforms us more and more to the image of the Son, our identity as image bearers is gradually restored. Thus, our relationship to the Son is what restores our relationship with the Father, and that restoration process is being carried out by way of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the restoration of man's identity is intimately connected to his relationship with each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Therefore, if you would have true security and significance, come to Christ. Believe and repent. Otherwise, you shall continue in your feelings of insecurity and insignificance, and your identity crisis will never be resolved. Let's pray. Father, again, we marvel that we would be made to bear your image. What a, what a place of dignity we've been given. What an identity we've been given. That you would draw us into relationship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would conform us all more and more to the image of your son, the perfect image bearer, perfectly displaying both masculinity and femininity in a perfect balance. Lord, let us be like that, always compassionate and tender and, and merciful towards others, and yet not being afraid to confront sin. First and foremost, to confront the sin that remains in our own hearts, but also to Confront the sin that remains in those around us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.